Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. It's a beautiful day in London today. This is Arun Sudhaman, editor of The Homes Report, joined for today's show by Vicky Chowney from H&K. Vicky, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you back. Last time you were here was post-South by Southwest. Yep, very tired. Yes, indeed. But presumably you have a lot more energy this time. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, actually, like, that, the last podcast was good. We got through a lot of stuff we in did. terms of trends. Although um, we somehow, or you, I'm going to say you, you <laughs> somehow, we didn't mention the um, one of the, the main, I think, things that came up at South By, which was Meerkat. So there is a reason for that. Okay, right. And actually, I was talking about this um, yesterday with, with some people internally, in that Meerkat became popular at South By, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a South By launch. It's right. not like Twitter, which launched at South By. So okay. theoretically, not okay. a South By trend, but... Well, you could just say you got distracted by <laughs> robots and Jaffa, Jaffa cakes, cakes. <laughs> possibly. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, some of the things that have caught our eye, particularly in the digital world recently, and I guess Meerkat and Periscope would be top of the list? Definitely. Okay, so tell us more. So, as I as I just mentioned, Meerkat became really popular around the time of South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. Really, it had launched just beforehand, and you could see a couple of, you know, the early adopter crowd starting to um, use it to stream. For those of you who don't know, what it is, it's an essentially a service that you download and then it allows you to live stream straight into your Twitter feed. Okay. So right. it means that it creates a, a unique link. You can click on it from a tweet and then you can watch a live stream of video or audio if you just prefer. Mm. Um, and it's quite good because it's quite natural. Mm-hmm. It's obviously native, so it just appears as a link within a tweet. Mm. Um, and then it only... You know, you can only watch that stream when when someone is live. It's right. not like it stores it and then you can click later, later to watch something. So it also has kind of like a bit of a Snapchat element to it mm. in that it's really of the moment and it's only live and only accessible when someone is streaming. Okay, so that's Meerkat. And then very soon after that, uh, Twitter launches Periscope, mm-hmm. which does exactly what Meerkat does. But does. apparently does it better and... Uh, is also on on Twitter and part of Twitter, which I assume poses some sort of threat to yeah. Meerkat. I mean, it's it's interesting because when you look at you know from a marketing perspective, the brand use of the of both platforms, there's really not been any brands that have played around with Meerkat yet. But there's been lots who've played around with Periscope okay. in terms of playing with that and oh, seeing what they can do. Interesting. Why Periscope? Um, why, why are brands preferring Periscope over Meerkat? I think it's just the Twitter connection. So, right. you know, you'll have brands who will work with the sales team at Twitter. Oh, right. And they'll so. have, a, you know, they'll have their account manager mm. and their account manager will say, we've got this new product, you want to try it out? Yeah. And so they've got an immediate connection into yeah. that. It's versus, more reassuring. Exactly. And, you know, you've also then got direct access to Twitter's creative team who will help you work out what the best way to play with it is mm. um, and it just that will all probably have been bundled in yeah. alongside you know investment and media spend from different companies 
Yeah, it's it's an issue for Meerkat, I would have thought, because their whole thing is is to make this the app um, public and and use Twitter's network. I mean, it, it's an app that really requires Twitter. Yeah. So it's hard to see. Feeds off of it. Yeah, it feeds off it, exactly. So it's hard to see um, what Meerkat will do next, and it's also hard to really envisage a situation where we need two of these apps. Yeah, I mean. The the great thing about Meerkat and having it downloaded on my iPhone is that you get the alerts when people are live streaming. Mm. Um, I haven't played around with Periscope a lot, but you know if you've got an iOS version of it, it's going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And really, the the question is, do you need both of those, or is it going to be based on you know what people within your network are using? Right. It's a little bit like the early days of um, kind of photo sharing sites. Mm, yeah. Would you we remember Yellow would, Frog? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, which one do you use, mm. and is that dependent on what you see other people using more of? Yeah. And I think that will dictate. But then I think what's I think what we've seen happen with photo sharing is. Um, Twitter just take it all over, yeah. right? apart from Instagram, yeah. um, which has, has, you know, continues to grow. Coming back to the brand angle, why? Mm-hmm. What, what is so interesting for brands um, when it comes to these types of services? I mean, it's it's easy. I think you know, whenever it, there's there's a launch of apps like these, they're often heralded as the next big thing for mm-hmm. brand marketing. Um, Will this be more like, you know, something like Vine or Instagram, which has proved its worth or or or, or perhaps something more akin to Quora, oh, Quora. which I always like to use. Or Jelly. <laughs> Do you remember Jelly? Google Wave. <laughs> I actually quite liked Google Wave. Yeah. And okay. I loved Google Reader. Yeah, no, Google Reader was good. I yeah, was yeah, super was. sad that that, yeah. that kind of got that's shut true. down. Jelly. That's true. Jelly. That's a good one. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, not to go over old ground too much, but again, at South by Southwest, Biz was talking a lot about Jelly and how they really believed that that was going to be, um, you know, successful on a mainstream basis and have loads of scale. But actually, it's still going because yeah. there's a really small core of people who are hyper, hyper active on it right. and therefore it, it's kind of just like it's organically just looking after itself yeah but anyway back but to brands don't want that no, presumably no, no, no. no they want reach and scale And so do you see this as being a big a big deal for brands Meerkat and Periscope I think because we're still in this environment where people are completely obsessed with real time marketing yes I do think it will become quite popular quite quickly mm-hmm. um, at least from an experimentation point of view because you know while people are happily now finally coming accustomed to the point that you know a centralized model doesn't really work anymore you can't build it and they will come and just pull people to a central campaign hub and expect that to be the central point for any campaign you have to work to a distributed model which is where you look at where people are spending their time and then you put messages and content in those places and what periscope and meerkat do really well is use an existing network of people where they spend a lot of time and they've just created almost like a complementary tool to allow you to do a new thing with that network. Mm. So it's putting it's putting content and messages and streams into an already, already busy place where people are already engaged. Mm. Um, 
and for you know for the real time marketing aspect, it's a really easy way to quickly live stream things like mm-hmm. events, behind the scenes interviews, uh, demonstrations. Um, even going mm. into kind of uh, product launches and things like that, you know, there's there's a whole load of different opportunity, and because it's so easy and straightforward to do, you know, mm-hmm. anyone can do it from their phone. Yeah, that makes it slightly more appealing. Great. Yeah. So we're going to see more product launches. Um, they are the option to see. I think I yeah, the option. I mean, the really <laughs> interesting stuff is when you've got people like um, so. GE did a test mm-hmm. um, using Periscope actually, because going back to what I said earlier, you know, mm. Madonna is really the only person who's tried to play with me. Tried, uh, tried. Um, but Periscope has seen quite a few nice examples, and one of them was GE, where they got their creator in residence who's a woman called Sally LePage, to go behind the scenes of Star Talk Radio, mm-hmm. which is one of the radio shows that um, Bill Nye does with um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, right, okay. Um, and so they did some really nice live streaming and some interviews with them behind the scenes. And that's quite interesting because it's, you know, it really is, it's something that could potentially be quite tricky to do or expensive if you send a camera crew in. But actually, if you've got someone holding a phone that kind of knows how to use it and is a bit digitally savvy and understands what makes a good shot, then it's much easier to do it. And it's quick and it's, you know, it's of the moment and you can do it quite, quite quickly. Mm. And you think it got a good response? I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to see uh, what the outcome is. But the nice thing about both um, Periscope and Meerkat is you have a definite view of how many people have seen a stream. Mm. So at any one time, you can watch how many people are watching, which is not an estimated group of eyeballs. It's a definitive. Yeah. These 50, 100, 1,000 people have definitely watched what I'm streaming. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's like with everything. Instagram is super popular, 300 million users a month who are active. But everyone's now asking the question about... Um, looking at the kind of performance from a KPI and measurement perspective, what's the data? And that will be where things like Periscope and Meerkat either fail or they continue to be useful. They each have, or they both have, um, calls to action opportunities, if I'm not mistaken. I think that you can you can put a link in or you can add something to the end of the of the stream or maybe during the stream. I seem to recall reading this. I I haven't seen it on Meerkat, but I think it was on it's Periscope. It's quite likely that on Periscope you can do because mm. that's Twitter's go-to. Yeah, um, you know they've recognised the value in offering brands opportunities to uh, click out to purchase or to download or to visit a website. Mm-hmm. And so it it wouldn't surprise me if they're thinking about putting that into the streams as well. Right, and presumably that would be quite important yeah. for brands. Yeah, I mean if you've if you think about the the journey of someone watching something within Twitter, so you're on Twitter, you're scrolling through your feed, you see that um, you know Spotify is doing a behind the scenes um, session with the villagers, which they did do, um, mm. and you suddenly go, "Wow, I love this! I really like that music. I want to purchase it." Mm. That's where it starts to become a really powerful real time marketing tool that actually has a, a path to purchase versus just a really nice bit of content creation that kind of exists for a short period of time and then mm. doesn't do anything after that. 
and not massively expensive, no. I guess, either to no. do to to use these types of services. I mean, it's it's like everything. It's more skills led. It's mm. about the the person who a comes up with the idea in the first place, and then b is able to um, manage the phone or the camera in a smart way so that it's actually producing something that people want to watch. Because even though you'll see lots of people, you know, like individuals doing like shaky, weird live streams, which, to be quite honest, are sometimes really weird. Mm. Watching that from a brand, it's not very appealing. Mm. Um, and I can't wait to see what Red Bull do with it. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would have been amazing, right? For the yeah. um, for the, the Stratos, the Red Bull Stratos. Exactly. Yeah, jump. I mean, live streaming that would be... I mean, they did live stream that, right? But yes, in a did. In a more direct way, yeah. using something like Periscope would have been phenomenal. Right. Indeed. Do you see this um, posing a threat to any other services or apps? You don't think it's going to, for example, affect how popular YouTube is? I don't think so. I think people go to YouTube because... Um, a lot of brands and influencers and celebs use it to host content and largely it's longer form stuff which is why I actually think the Madonna example is strange right mm. because she's not actually live streaming it, a video it wasn't a live she's playing a tape right a tape that's so traditional but they still couldn't get it right yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so so that was you know it was a massive moment for Meerkat because they managed to get a huge name involved mm. um, that's okay it went fine yeah yeah but I think the the difficulty is, you know, are you really doing justice to a service which is intended for live streaming if mm. you're just showing off a music video? Mm. And it's not like you can go back and watch it at a later date. Once the stream is over, it's over. So I think on I think I read on Periscope it stays for 24 hours. Yeah, but she did it on Meerkat. Yeah, she did it on Meerkat. So the stream right. is gone. Yeah. Whereas something like YouTube, people will use that to host content that you go back and watch time and time again. And also then it's about discovery. So you might, you know, you're served with videos at the end where it's like, why not watch this other video from Madonna? Or yeah. why not watch this clip from her documentary? And it's a much more involved experience. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a different type of content. So I don't think that, you know, the, these live streaming apps are going to affect YouTube um, it's much more likely to affect something like a live streaming business that charges an awful lot of money. And mm. trust me, it's a lot to live it is. stream Yeah, stuff. I know. We, we look at it for our events. Yeah. It's, it's prohibitive. Yeah. And, and now you, we don't need to. Exactly. All you really need mm. is a, um, a really decent camera mm -hmm. set up on a tripod so that yep. it's nice and steady. And then you can just live stream your event. And there aren't going to be any issues with bandwidth or... From, what was, mean, from the person viewing or the person streaming? Either. I think the person viewing, it's just going to suck your battery. Right. Okay. And vice versa. So if you're yeah. actually then actually you're not publishing, are you? You're streaming something Sh out. Yeah. It's just about your battery length. Right. Okay. Um, at some point, they're going to start charging, you would have thought. There'll be a paid component. God. I mean, you would, you would think so, right? So yeah. it, it would make sense that um, to have a premium stream, mm. so higher quality, uh, higher, right. higher definition, okay. faster, and maybe the ability to um, you know, save your content on, in Meerkat's. And have more call to action. 
opportunities, yeah. possibly. Um, because if they want brands to get involved, I assume then at some point it, yeah. will, it will carry a cost. Which one has the better name, do you think? Oh, definitely Meerkat. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. I mean, Periscope is a, mm. it doesn't even really make sense, right, in terms of the product. Because it's like, yes, a Periscope, you're able to put your head above the pulpit and see what's going on in the outside world. But it's, it's not really live. It makes me think of submarines. I was just thinking of a submarine, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Which, weirdly, is also, I, I think, yellow submarine. Mm. And then I, it's Meerkat. Right, just, yeah. Just a weird insight into my head. <laughs> okay. Um, no, Meerkat's a good a good name, I think. Mm. It's a shame, though, because I, I, I worry for Meerkat, given that Periscope came out a month later and seems to be attracting better reviews. Yeah, so um, interestingly, I spoke to Spreadfast yesterday, which is mm-hmm. like a so- social data company, etc. Yep. And they pulled some stats around the mentions of Meerkat and Periscope on, um, on Twitter, obviously, and looked at people talking about them. And more interestingly, didn't just look for mentions of Meerkat versus Periscope, actually used MRK.TV or Periscope.TV, which means people are actually streaming. So using the, the links. Yeah, yep. so it's like the the most accurate way of, mm-hmm. of looking at people, not necessarily people who are actually streaming because some of these might be retweets, but still mm. it's quite a nice gauge. Yeah. And, and just looking at the graph, there's, you know, these this stat these stats go from March eighth to April the eighth, so mm-hmm. it's the month of when Meerkat became really popular, and then Twitter launched uh, Periscope, and there's a steady rise in mentions of MRK.TV right up until the start of South by, and then there's an overlap which starts on the twenty fifth of March, which is when the Periscope announcement came out, and there's an absolutely huge spike right up until. Mm, the, oh, no, it's actually the 28th spike. So that was when the, the announcement was. But mm. since then, mentions of both have steadily slowed out and become more even. And mm. now they're almost identical. And they've declined a fair amount. Yeah. I mean, have they declined significantly? Is that Well, if you look back to the 11th of March, mm. the mentions of Meerkat, so MRK.TV, are almost identical now to mm-hmm. then. So there's been a huge spike over the South by period, but now they're kind of evening. Um, and Periscope is exactly the same, but they've they've had a much shorter span of people getting really excited about it and then mm-hmm. it decreasing. So they're almost identical at the moment in terms of usage. Yeah. Um, the actual numbers of tweets is about six hundred thousand of Meerkat and about three hundred thousand of, of Periscope so far. Right. Um, but you know, at, at the moment, that data would suggest that they're fairly on an even keel, mm-hmm. which okay. is quite interesting. Interesting. Considering that, you know, Twitter does, well, Periscope has the power of the Twitter connection behind it, you would expect that to be much higher right. for them. Indeed, yeah. Um, what do you think are the important things that brands need to keep in mind if they're going to want to start using um, either Meerkat or Periscope? I think it's it's the same bit of advice that I would give to any new social shiny thing. It's is really think about whether it's appropriate. You know, um, the Madonna example is is great for Meerkat because they're a big name, but 
does it do justice to what the actual platform does well? And, um, you know, has that been a good thing for them? Yes, in terms of awareness. But for Madonna, mm, probably could have just put her video on YouTube mm. and, and launched it via there and have probably better views mm -hmm. and um, have made a bigger splash. So yeah. it's like gauge whether it's appropriate and then gauge whether the actual thing that you're live streaming is appropriate. Mm. So there's no point just live streaming like the back of your office if you're not a brand that has a really exciting office. Mm. If you're ASOS and, right. you're, and you're shooting a catwalk, mm. that's amazing and people would yeah. want to watch that because they're excited by that kind of behind the scenes aspect of fashion. Mm. Um, and but so just gauge that. Why wouldn't you just shoot an Instagram video I, I know it's not live, but would you not get more viewers, potentially? Yeah, but I think if you're plugging it into your Twitter, mm -hmm. so if you're using Periscope, well, both of them link back to Twitter, but mm. if you've got a sizable Twitter following, and a lot of brands do have bigger communities on Twitter than they do on Instagram, and you've got um, like a celebrity who's just come in, then you can do something that's more instantaneous and actually show more people that they're in the office or they're doing a cool event than if you were to just shoot a short Instagram video. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, that that's an interesting one to watch, and we'll see if, if it goes the way of jelly. <laughs> um, I hope not for their sake. That We should at some point do a show where we go through all of the Google um Services, yeah, and all products. of the all, all, all of, of the um, Yahoo ones that they've oh. bought and destroyed. Oh, yeah, that would be a long show. That would be. Um, you wanted to talk about dot sucks, I think. Dot suck. Dot yeah. suck. The okay. future of trolling. Yeah. So this is a a new domain. Yeah, a new domain um, that you are now able to purchase, and lots of the big players have now kind of taken out uh, their own name, so facebook.suck mm -hmm. google.suck etc mm -hmm. as almost like an insurance measure to prevent trolls and detractors from setting up sites in the future yeah because um, why would anyone do that <laughs> exactly but I think it's, it's a really interesting move mm. and it, you'd advise brands to um to, to make these purchases on the basis that they're protecting themselves from problems down the line? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how, how much it is. But, mm. yeah, it's a very good preemptive measure. Taylor Swift's been doing it, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, I always suggest to everyone that we take most of our life guidance lessons from, from Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift yeah. or, or Taylor Swift records. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but no, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the whole notion of um, kind of the the approach to dealing with haters being more uh, proactive mm. is kind of a trend that we're seeing people doing at the moment. So yeah, um, there's a sports brand who works with, uh, what's her name, Giselle. Right. And they basically have an ad where she's in a she's in a room and she's boxing and she's basically working out dressed in this sports gear mm -hmm. and she's being spurred on by tweets from haters around her being flashed up around the room. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, and it's just it's it's an interesting kind of approach that we've not seen many brands doing, but now lots of people are kind of taking that on as a more uh, 
more aggressive way to deal with people who don't like your brand. Mm. Using it to fuel rather than kind of get annoyed by. Yeah, you do see that also with with the ads of, and, and segments of celebrities reading out the tweets. Yes, Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, right? yeah, President Obama, I think, himself yeah. has, has done it. Always quite amusing. Well, yeah, very amusing. Yeah. But sometimes so harsh. Well, they don't take the really, the really... I like, don't know. I've seen mean, some oh, really bad ones okay. on that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm reading that with with the dot sucks domain, um, do brands have to pay a premium to mm. buy them compared to... I would imagine so. Right. So it's quite a good entrepreneurial opportunity for yeah. um, the manager of dot sucks, mm-hmm. Vox Populi. Yeah. I would. I think it would be interesting to uh, reach out to them and and get a gauge on a figure, for yeah. an individual. I might do that. Well, according to the, I'm just reading in this Washington Post article, um, two thousand five hundred dollars a year is the premium that Vox Populi has offered to trademark owners, um, but ICANN is going to rule um, on whether that actually breaks the law mm. by jacking up prices. Yeah, and offering, I guess the problem for them would be one price for an individual versus one price for, you know, a business owner. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and the other issue is whether ICANN has the enforcement ability. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting one. And then maybe we should talk a little bit about Facebook. Okay. Social networking service Facebook. Oh, yeah, that's the one. Yes, <laughs> indeed. I mixed it up in my head for a second. Um, always worth talking about because of you know their various um, <laughs> efforts to get brands to spend more money on their platform I mean yeah. look they're a business they yeah. uh, they obviously have to make money um, and they seem to be taking more steps to do that by creating even more of a walled garden uh, in terms of the content on their site and uh, how it how it gets served to people I wondered if maybe you could you could talk a little bit about some of the things you're seeing on Facebook? I think the interesting thing, there's two, so there's two things at the moment around Facebook. One is the increase in popularity of groups. Mm. So um, there's, this morning I saw some figures that, that showed that actually active users of groups on a monthly basis is exactly the same as active users of WhatsApp which is really interesting Mm. because actually the group's mentality is something that I think a lot of marketers had kind of written, drawn a line under Mm. and had gone, actually, these are just being used by smaller um, communities to talk about very niche topics. Right. But the the growth in that would suggest that, um, you know, there is still potential there and there's still an appetite for people to form into smaller groups communities but still talk publicly about stuff mm-hmm. um, so that's really interesting um, and also the fact that earlier this week they lo- they announced at the F8 conference um, that they were going to release an API for Facebook Messenger Right. so you, you can see within Messenger at the moment the popularity of stickers and icons and stuff and they're mm-hmm. going to allow you know developers agencies, brands to work with the Messenger API to build stuff specifically to be shared within Messenger, which I think is also quite interesting. Mm. At the moment, Messenger is about six hundred million active users per month. Right. So it's 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 growing, and it's almost at the point that WhatsApp is at. 
Wow. Okay. And there's definitely this impression from the industry that WhatsApp is the absolute go-to place, but actually Messenger is really fast approaching the same levels of engagement. And what are brands doing with WhatsApp? Well, there's some really nice examples from people like Hellman's. So in Brazil, they created a service where you could take a picture of your fridge and um, WhatsApp it to Hellman's chefs, and they would give you a recipe um, Mm. based on what's in your fridge, um, and then they would help you through the process, Mm. and they would send you photos, videos, uh, drawings, and then they would also alert you as to when the food was ready to take out the oven. And it was really, really nice, and with very little media spend, they got thousands of people to sign up for it in the first, excuse me, couple of weeks. And that's a really nice example Mm. um, of using that appropriately um, because it's just a really good idea. Mm. And again, I would come back to that idea of something being appropriate. You know, it's it's tapping into that sense of not knowing what to do, being a little bit lazy, not wanting to, like, plug stuff into Google or go scrolling through the millions of pictures on Pinterest, which actually is becoming a little bit much. Um, and providing people with a simple helpline to get a recipe quickly and then help them learn how to make it. Mm. I guess the, the question there is whether it improved sales for Hellman's. Sorry to be so well, know, if pragmatic you, about this. But. It's probably di- quite difficult to track directly, mm. but if you consider that it's something like if you only increase the, the amount of mayonnaise people use by half a jar per year... The increase on bottom line is like phenomenal. It's like most FMCG or food products. You only have to increase people's use by like a tiny amount. Right. And it has huge effects on your revenue because you're you're just selling so much volume. That you only need to get people to think uh, about right. using it a little tiny bit. So this more. isn't just mayonnaise, presumably. No, not, effect, all, yeah. not all of the recipes would include mayonnaise, because <laughs> that would be awful. Yeah. Oh, that's what I thought. I thought it was like, oh, right. I thought, no, but... Um, mayonnaise-inspired <laughs> cooking. You, but if you, do, if you do happen to have mayonnaise in your fridge, and mm. pff, the likelihood of someone going, I'm going to text or WhatsApp Hellman's, mm. the likelihood is that they probably do have mayonnaise in their fridge because they're already thinking about Hellman's. Yeah. Um, but if you consider that if a, a service gives you a nice recipe that uses mayonnaise and it's really easy to make in 20 minutes, you're probably more likely to make it again a couple of times in that year. And therefore, immediately, yeah. you've already upped that usage by half a jar. Mm. So again, it's it's all kind of like assumptions. Mm. It's difficult to track something like that unless you're selling. And at the moment, you know, it would still be really difficult to try and track purchase through WhatsApp unless you gave people, in if you, unless you as a brand were sending people individual links, mm-hmm. which you could do, but would be quite complex. Yeah, because there's lots of individuals. Right. Yeah. So Although all... I'm, ass- you know, I'm assuming then that in the Hellman's example, they didn't actually have real people doing this. I'm assuming that they built something. That you think sat maybe robots? Perhaps back to robots. <laughs> um, okay. And yeah. then they had a. I mean, I don't know. They might have had real people doing it. You'd think. That, you know, a mayonnaise I if, brand. I don't know if that's scalable. Mm. Um, so coming back to Facebook, yes. where you quite um, adeptly, I thought, sidestepped my question <laughs> about how actually content is performing on Facebook. Mm. I wondered if you'd like to maybe um, 
Tell me how, how happy you are with Facebook's current um, paid media content performance. I mean, realistically, content performs really well if you pay for it. Okay. And um, if you have the money to spend, then you can turn Facebook into a really valuable way to reach a lot of people um, and reach them within the environment that they are already engaged and kind of looking for a bit of entertainment. Mm. So if you have big budgets, then it's great. If you don't, it's incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is that, um, you know, they're, they're not particularly open about their algorithm and how it works. Um, and, you know, as has been covered and talked about to death, you know, um, zero organic reach is fast approaching. Mm. And so for agencies who run, you know, content programs and do community management, it's really, it's hard work because, you know, when you're dealing with a global brand that has global KPIs that were set probably a year or two ago and um, look at things like reach and engagement as measures of success, but don't take into the account the need for paid media to reach a larger group of people, or in fact any of your fans, um, then it's mm. challenging. Right. And there's really not much you can do anymore because the algorithm, you can't work it. You know, when Facebook was first around and, and brands started having pages, there were tricks and tips that you could use to massage your content create it in a way that would really engage people and you would see greater reach figures and greater engagement figures. But now that's, it just doesn't exist. And unless you pay, you have really no hope of any getting any real traction. Mm. And pay a lot. I mean, I think one yeah. of the um, attractions of Facebook was that it, it wouldn't, one of the initial attractions was that it wouldn't be perhaps as expensive as, as um other types of media buying, but that's kind yeah. of not necessarily the case. I mean, the argument they would put forward is that it's still more efficient mm. and it's more measurable. Which it is compared to, yeah. to mass media. But it's still very expensive if mm. you want to start to reach the amounts of figures that you would through TV. Okay, excellent. So we will see you again, I assume, on the I Echo so. Chamber. Um yeah, no, I think we're good. We, we, I think um, I haven't been banished. No, this show has not has not resulted in you being banished. Excellent. Don't worry. Um, it's actually a marathon. We've got a double header today, so Paul Holmes is coming in shortly. Exciting. It is exciting. We're going to talk about um, Russia and and the Sabre Awards and Huntsworth. Nice. All connected. Very somehow, so, or another. So I'm doing the kind of like cutesy animal related bit of the yeah. podcast and then Paul's going to do like the serious stuff well I would never suggest <laughs> anything of the sort after you know the discussions we had about Eric Schmidt on, on the last show <laughs> so well, you, I, I didn't say anything about gender you know I know but you, you know just, I want to be careful <laughs> it's wise about any kind of implications <laughs> of that nature um, well thank you very much thank you and we'll me. have you back on soon Okay, cool. Thanks. So we're here. It's, it's, this is basically now part two of our marathon echo chamber recording session, welcoming Holmes Report Supremo Paul Holmes into the studio. Paul. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Nothing I'd rather be doing at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon than podcasting with you. <laughs> there are some big stories recently, which I think we should discuss. 
Uh, and I think you also want to talk through a little bit um, in terms of some of the lessons you've learned from sitting in a lot of Sabre judging sessions. About 36 over the last four weeks. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's do let's do the Sabres second show. Should we talk about some of these news stories first? Sure. Okay. Well, this one's a couple of weeks old now. Um, Ketchum... Ketchum's relationship with Russia ending, we, we are not completely sure um, exactly who ended it, although I think it was, it was one of those decisions where uh, neither side was, was, was especially unhappy to see it end. Interested in your thoughts on this. I mean, you, you always have quite a singular view on agencies working for governments that maybe are perceived as unethical. And I'm kind of interested to hear your view on that and, and, and maybe where this relationship ended up? Yeah, so I've always taken the position and, and will, I think, continue to take the position that it is um, just as possible to do ethical work for unethical clients as it is to do unethical work for ethical clients. In other words, as long as, um, as, long as you're telling the truth, um, as long as the advice you are giving is constructive and ethical and is nudging the client in the direction of better behavior rather than worse, then I think you could you can give advice to, to pretty much anyone and, and indeed handle communications for pretty much anyone. And I think, frankly, if we, if we took the view that you could only work for people um, who were doing the right thing all the time, 90% of the PR industry would be out of work tomorrow. I mean, the people who mm. need uh, our advice the most um, are the people who just don't get how the modern communications landscape works. And I'd, I'd, certainly, um, I'd certainly put Putin's Russia mm. in, that, uh, in that context. Um, the only thing that I'd say about that is that... Um, if Ketchum was giving the Putin government the best advice it could, mm. um, it would certainly have involved scaling back on some of the activities that have given Russia a particularly bad name over the last few years. Um, and that advice was not being taken. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I understand certainly that, uh, that, that the mission was economic development rather than geopolitical positioning. Um, but it seems to me that those two things are so closely intertwined that the, the more of a rogue nation Russia becomes, the lower the stability um, appears to be from the outside um, and the less economic activity it's going to attract. So, mm. um, you know, I think, I think probably the point had come where... Ketchum had done pretty much all it could do. And some of the comments that I saw from the Russians suggested that they had slightly unrealistic expectations, that they could mm. act like a rogue nation and still get good publicity, which uh, just isn't mm. going to happen with the best PR agency in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a relationship that started, I think, it's 2006. I think it's almost almost decade long. Um, and it started with a lot of promise. It was a different era almost then. Russia was, was much more open to engaging the outside world. I think um, Medvedev was in charge. Um, then you look at what's happened over the recent years, things have clearly changed. Um, do you think sometimes PR agencies are guilty of weighing up their ability to actually improve a situation 
against the amount of money a specific client might be making them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that has to be a temptation um, in a lot of cases. And, and, you know, I would suspect that it is in some ways more difficult for a company, um, I suspect we'll touch on this topic in a moment, under pressure from holding companies mm, um, right. to, um, to, to turn money away. Um, and so I think that's always a factor. At the same time, um, I think if the people, uh, you know, I, we both know the leadership of Ketchum fairly well. I suspect if the people at the top of that agency did not believe um, that they could do some good, um, they would have turned their back on the client a lot earlier than they did. Okay, interesting. And how important do you feel are an agency staff in this equation? Because... You, you have to wonder how comfortable a lot of people in Ketchum were, certainly recently, um, about being consistently linked with Russia in the media and having it become one of the sort of um, things Ketchum was becoming known for. Yeah, I think obviously that kind of stuff adds up and takes its toll. I mean, I, I remember a long time ago when Hill and Knowlton, and this is like going back five CEOs at least. Oh, um, not, not that long then. Was, um, <laughs> was do- oh, Hill and Knowlton humor, um, was doing work for the, um, for the Catholic bishops mm-hmm. on the whole topic of abortion. And it was an issue that female employees in particular, many male employees I suspect, um, mm. felt incredibly personally strongly about And I was receiving copies of pretty much every confidential memo that went back and forth between the Catholic bishops and the agency um, from somebody inside the agency who who had been told she had to work on the account. I mean, that's that's Mm. kind of ridiculous. And I think most agencies have progressed to the point um, where if you don't personally believe in a client, you don't have to work on it. But when something becomes a public domain issue the way that, that Russia did and becomes part of the discourse about the agency, um, even though I suspect most people are not quite as personally invested in mm-hmm. the relationship with Russia as they are in a woman's right to choose, um, it has to take its toll. And I, I suspect that, uh, that there'll be a lot of employees who are relieved about not mm. having to answer questions about this relationship, um, you know, at cocktail parties and, uh, and mm. in the pub. Yeah, the, the thing with agencies when they're in the media, it often seems to be for things like this, you know, Ketchum um, working for Russia. Another story we covered earlier this year, Edelman's relationship with the American Petroleum Institute ending. I mean, that was... That, that got them a lot of, I suppose you'd call it, unwanted attention last year. Can PR firms ever win when um, when their, their um, presence in the mainstream media is often linked to stories of this type? Okay. Um, so the, the, the short answer is that I think in most cases, um, particularly when you're working on a controversial client such as this, there are benefits to trying to fly below the radar. Having said that, you know, um, I'm a great believer in transparency. um, And I think that long term, um, it's probably better for everybody concerned to be transparent about this. The real issue is that we have to do a better job of um, explaining what good public relations is. Mm. In other words, I think... um, 
you know, I, I think that a lot of these stories, the implication appears to be either that the PR agency has been hired to be, you know, to do spin, to be a mouthpiece, to manipulate the public, to, um, yeah. uh, you know, in many cases, people yeah. are quite sort of clear about the fact that they think a PR agency has been hired to deceive the public. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think we just have to do a much better job as an industry of explaining to people um, just, you know, the, the wide range of activities that PR agencies are involved in and the fact that very few of them really fall under that that kind of head, heading. Um, you know, I, I, think, um, I think on the one hand, you particularly run into this with public sector clients. You know, they're spending your money as a taxpayer mm. on PR. Sounds I mean, sounds yeah. like a slightly kind of, geez, what are these guys doing yeah. frittering away a couple of hundred thousand dollars? Yeah. The reality is that one of the first responsibilities of government is to communicate right. with its with its public, with its citizens. And that is in the modern era, not something that you can do for free. Um, you know, communicating effectively is an art just like um, defending a company in the legal or the uh, legal environment uh, or public institution in the legal environment is an art. You'd never say, you know, don't hire a lawyer, do it yourself. I don't understand why. Be, well, I do understand, but it's a, mm. it's, it has to change. Sure. I mean, that that is a story now. Government spends money on PR firms. Mm-hmm. Is now a yeah, I've actually been um, I've actually been collecting examples <laughs> of this um, in, in one of my Google news mm-hmm. alerts because right. I just you know I think at some point we have to start to make the uh, to, to explain to people and look you're dealing with you're dealing with two audiences you're dealing with um, the opposition political party and its allies who want mm-hmm. to make the government look bad and you're dealing with the media who want to make PR people look bad mm-hmm. and when they get together to sell that story there's very little resistance to it yes. um, but I think it's a case that the industry needs to make much more strongly um, and much more powerfully than it has that the, in these circumstances hiring PR is not only a smart decision but a good decision in, in both senses of the word. Okay, so let's let's move on um, and discuss the results that came out today. Um, Huntsworth Group, owner of um, PR agency brands such as Grayling, Citygate, and Red, um, it's a UK-based uh, PR holding group. I think probably best known for um, being led and founded and led by Lord Chadlington, who of course founded and led Shandwick, uh, which is now now become the world's second biggest PR firm. Uh, Lord Chadlington, of course, um, is, is exiting the business, as, as we've discussed in various places. Um, their 2014 results uh, reported today showed profits had dropped almost a quarter. Uh, and again, the agency had found growth difficult to come by. I think, according to our analysis, since 2008, it's only grown once in 2011, and that was something like 2%. Um, your take? My take? Um, I think that there is... I think holding companies are rightly focused on profits. Mm -hmm. And PR agency management should be focused on building a great PR agency. 
And I think that the world works best when uh, both of those sides are in balance, when there is a strong management team at the agency pushing for great work and great client service and great thinking and great innovation. Um, and when there is a strong business side that is saying, reminding you constantly, you have to make money while you're doing that. I think that in recent years, that has been out of balance mm. um, at Huntsworth and its constituent parts. And mm. um, I think that the relentless focus on profitability has come before the focus on building a great agency. Now, you know, again, I'm, I'm on record many, many times as saying that the value chain in public relations is pretty clear. You get great people, great people do great work, great work attracts and retains great clients, and great clients make you money. You can't jump to the final step and say we're going to focus on making money unless you've got the people and the work and the clients to make that happen. And my suspicion is that, I mean, the, the two biggest PR brands, Citygate and Grayling, um, have both been through fairly severe leadership changes in the last two or three years. Mm. Um, and I don't think right now anybody would say that either of those two firm, firms is a great PR agency doing great work. Mm. And I actually think that it's, it's more and more difficult to be average in this market. I think that the difference between those firms that are doing great work and those firms that are doing ordinary work is more visible and uh, more mm. easily detectable by clients today than it ever has been. Mm. Um, and I think... I think the challenge for Huntsworth is um, this, this, this sounds counterintuitive and it's going to be very difficult for them to do, but forget about profits until they have great agencies. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd go back to basics and focus on building, building really strong global footprints for those two agencies and making them um, first rate again. Mm. It's ironic, though, is it, is it not that profitability has actually declined considerably, despite the focus on profit. Yeah, well, it is and it isn't. It, it's, it's one of those things, I think, where, you know, it, in, in the best run businesses, in the best run agencies, um, profitability is a result of doing all the other things right. Mm. And if you focus only on profitability and not on doing all the other things right, ironically, um, unfortunately, um, yeah. It can be counterproductive. It's sort of like, um, you know, if you if you have a handful of sand, the, the tighter you squeeze it to hold on to it, the more of it's going to sort of seep out through between your fingers. Yeah. Um, and and you, you can't, you know, you can't in this business focus exclusively on profitability as a, as a goal. Um, you have to get the other stuff right first. Mm. Okay. Um, New CEO at Huntsworth, Paul Tafe. He's obviously got a big job in his hands. One of the questions that's raised by, I suppose, not just today's results, but by results over the past five or six years, is whether any of the brands are in line for a sale or whether indeed Huntsworth um, may consider leaving the public markets. Interested in your views on, on both of those? 
Um, well, first of all, I, it's great to have um, Paul back in the PR business, in the PR agency business. Excuse a, a former me. Hill and Norton CEO. Um, yes. Um, not, not the one that uh, was in charge during the events that I was talking about. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, and um, it has to be said, I, it, Paul, must, um, Paul must love a challenge. Mm. Um, on the other hand, he's sort of, you know, to a certain extent, I think it's, it's a great position to be in. Um, you know, you have two large agencies that are effectively um, between leaders right now. Right. And Paul will be able to install people that he believes in. Um, he's been around this business long enough that, um, you know, he has lots of friends and lots of contacts and lots of people who have enjoyed working with him in the past. And, uh, you know, I would think that would give him um, a leg up in terms of recruiting a good team there. Um, look, I, I, I'm on record um, as saying that I don't think that public ownership is particularly helpful um, to running a PR agency. I still believe that. Um, I, I think it would be um, I think it would be worth looking at uh, what happens if you take a company like Huntsworth private again. Mm. Um, but um, you know I, I don't know what the what the group's ambitions are. Um, you know for a long time it looked like a, looked like a, a glorified roll-up. Right, um, and that it would sell at some point. Uh, yes. Um, you know, I, I suspect that nobody thinks that they're at the top of the market right now, so I, it's mm. hard to hard to see that deal. Yeah. But holding groups of that size are, are challenged anyway, aren't they, on the public markets? It's yes. It's difficult to yes. discern the benefit. Yes. Mm. Okay. All right, excellent. Well, let's talk Sabre Awards and... And you've actually made notes, which is um, historic. Uh, but also, I suggest, I mean, I suspect means that um, you, you've got some specific points you'd like to make about what? About the Sabre entry process? About the entries you've seen? So, yeah, um, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I've just come off basically 36 separate jury sessions. Mm -hmm. both in North America and in Europe. Um, and this year, more than ever, I felt very strongly that the process started with, as it always does, with this sort of optimism and excitement. You're seeing new work. You're seeing, you know, you're seeing creativity. You're seeing innovation. You're seeing what people believe is the best this industry has to offer. Mm -hmm. I have to say, by the end of the process... Um, a lot of that energy and enthusiasm and excitement and optimism had drained away, um, not because there weren't great programs, but because a lot of what I suspected was very, very good work was being presented in a way that, um, that stripped it of its excitement. That's, you would think the public relations industry... Um, <laughs> would have some insight into how to present work in such a way as yes. to... Uh, for, yeah. for an industry that is supposedly made up of great storytellers... Right, exactly. There is... There, there, there's a 
tangible feeling that people are actively trying to strip out the the anything that makes a good story Be, because I don't know because they've been taught that there's a certain you know formal format to follow or I I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is but mm-hmm. uh, it the presentation of the work and the storytelling mm. is not impressive and I and I began to wonder actually if if that rather than all the other things that we've talked about historically is the reason that PR agencies continued to come away from Cannes disappointed mm. yeah. with their result is that the, the formatting and the way in which they tell their story is just not compelling. It's baffling. Maybe there's the, the, the focus on results is kind of... It trumps all well, okay. else. So I made a list of 10 tips. That, that's, that's, mm. what we, that's, okay. that, that's why I had it scripted was because there were mm. 10 of them. And if I forgot one, it would look a little weird. And, and actually, three of them mm. are very much about results. I mean, it's not like we're focusing on the results yeah. so much and getting that part of oh, the really? equation so right that everything else falls by the wayside. We're not that the, the results are not great either. Okay. Well, do you want to go through the list? Sure. Um, and obviously you'll jump in and interrupt if you have something to say. But I'm sure I will. Some of them are, some of them are, are sort of fairly um, technical and formula-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one is, is fairly simple, which is, and, and this just became apparent in a number of categories, Enter as many categories as you can. Now, I know that sounds slightly self-serving because at the end of the day, we get additional category fees. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not necessarily what I mean. Uh, We give you three categories, uh, industry sector, practice area, uh, geographic category in Europe for for, for the same basic price, and people don't take advantage of that. So you'll see, for example, an employee communications campaign from a healthcare company that is entered in the employee communications category. Mm. That's a that's a very tough category. There's a lot of really strong work there. Mm. Um, only one of those campaigns can win. And then that's the only category that that campaign is entered in. Um, you get to the healthcare category, and um, I picked healthcare for a reason. There's a lot of very formulaic, sort of template-driven healthcare PR, particularly on the marketing side. We'll get a celebrity, we'll put them on the morning TV talk shows, they'll talk about how this changed their lives, you know, mm. we'll, or, you know, we'll go to a symposium. And, and an employee communications campaign that really sort of had an impact on how um, employees were engaged at a healthcare company, a pharma company or whatever, um, would actually stand out much more in the healthcare category than it does in the employee category, and it's not there. And it's actually kind of frustrating to to know that there was a runner-up in one category that was better. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying the mm-hmm. runner-up in employee comms was better than the winner in healthcare, but mm. it's frustrating when you see a runner-up in a, in a category and you think, boy, that was so much better than what won in another category. Mm. And if only they'd entered it, our judges would have been able to, to see that and, and, and select it as the winner. Mm. And, you know, my, my abiding interest in all of this is to make sure that as much great work as possible gets recognized. Mm. And, and there's a lot of great work that isn't being recognized. Okay. Um, the second thing that, that, I, that I should focus on is formatting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We have a fairly flexible approach to formatting. We allow people to send PowerPoint rather than yeah. two-page summaries. We allow people to send video if they yeah. want to. Um, you know, we, we feel that the, the whole sort of two-page summary is sort of an artifact of a bygone era and that there are multiple ways in which you can tell stories today and we should be open to all of them. Um, but the reality is that whether it's a two-page summary or a 12-page PowerPoint, people are not telling their stories particularly effectively. The formatting is dry and dull. And what you have to remember, I may come back to this point more than once as, as we talk about this, is that the average judge is reading through 100 to 120 case studies right. in order to select the winners in their four or five categories. That is a lot of case histories. And believe me, by the time you get a third of the way in, you're looking for any excuse to put that one on the discard pile and move on to the next one. And if the formatting is wrong, if you're presented with, you know, three pages of seven point type right up against the margins with no pictures, no illustrations, no breaks, barely any paragraphs, just, mm. you know, bullet point after bullet point. It's incredibly difficult to engage with the story that you're being told. And, and I feel like a lot of work is being presented in this in a very dry uh, Un unvisual, judge-unfriendly kind of way. Mm -hmm. okay. um, <clears throat> titles are surprisingly mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. um, one of the campaigns that, that made the cut in a couple of categories in, uh, in the U.S. was CVS Quits. Um, I like CVS Quits. It's, mm. it's punchy and it's right there. Mm. What I don't like is, you know, a campaign to help leading, you know, leading pharmacy CVS cement relationships with its customers by abandoning tobacco products. Yeah. And I swear to God, half the programs that we see have a title like that. It yeah. doesn't have to be an explanation. It actually is works better if it's something that intrigues you and makes you want to read on. And so, you know, try and come up with something fun as a title. And that matters, I think. Yeah. yeah it it, again, it's, you know, it's, it's your introduction to the campaign. It's the right. first thing you see when you pick up the two-page summary. Mm. And if it makes you want to keep reading, on yeah. which subject? An introductory paragraph focusing on what you think is the most interesting thing about the campaign um, and telling us why you're excited about it. Mm. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I found myself flashing to in a number of cases was I've had this campaign presented to me in report card meetings with agencies, you know, mm -hmm. just by agencies trying to showcase their best work to me sure. in person. And when the person who gets up and talks about the campaign mm. does that, they have 30 seconds. You know, mm -hmm. they're one of 20 people being mm -hmm. wheeled in and out of the room. They have 30 seconds to make you understand how great it was and how much fun it was to work in. Mm. And there's a passion to that and there's an enthusiasm to it and there's a clarity to it. It's an elevator pitch. And then you see the same campaign two months later as an award entry. Mm. And all of that passion has somehow been stripped away to present the sort of bare bones. And the one thing that really excited you, that made you think, boy, that's a, that's a potentially, you know, award-winning campaign, yeah. is the third bullet point on page two. Mm. And wow. it's, not, 
it, it doesn't grab you in the same way. It's incredibly frustrating mm. to know that there's a great campaign lurking underneath this this mediocre entry. And by the way, I'm not going to name names for obvious reasons, but we have judges who come in and they'll, look, they, they'll see work from their agency and they'll say, this campaign was so much better than they're telling you it was. Yeah. It's not just me. People from their own agencies often say that. Though. Well, <laughs> yes, I, sure. Um, the, another thing that I think is important to remember is that, that, you know, the winning campaigns don't have to have everything. They don't have to be sort of, you know, a, a platonic ideal of a, a great PR campaign. But they do need one thing that really stands out. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's the nature of the challenge and the degree of difficulty. Sometimes it's the, the research and a brilliant insight that came out of the research. Sometimes it's a bold creative idea that just blows you away. And sometimes it's just that it gets really extraordinary results, mm. even though you don't necessarily see great creative, right? So okay. sometimes there's, yeah. a, there's a terrific outcome. Mm -hmm. And you need to figure out which one of those things makes your campaign great mm. and focus on that one thing. This was a campaign that achieved outstanding results. This was a campaign that had a bold, courageous, creative idea and okay. really play that one aspect of it up and give the give the judges permission to to say, OK, that didn't have everything I'm looking for. But that one thing they're right was absolutely superb. Mm. Um, that sort of brings me to and is part of my, my sixth point, which is that losing campaigns, particularly particularly the campaigns that end up with a certificate of excellence. Um, but a lot of the other campaigns that, you know, the, the judges look at and like and, and then move on from mm -hmm. don't lose because they're not good campaigns. Mm -hmm. They lose because they don't stand out. They lose because there's nothing in them that makes you take a second look. Mm. You know, I would say I would say 90 percent of the campaigns that don't win are perfectly good, solid PR campaigns. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the people who worked on them have, you know, have some feeling about them that made them want to send it into an awards competition in the first place that made them think this could be a winner. Mm. But for whatever reason, it doesn't pop. It doesn't come out of the it doesn't come out of the entry and, and it sort of slap you in the face as a judge. And I suspect that there's a lot of really good work that people submit and that they have no idea why it didn't win. Mm. Um, and it's because they didn't find that one thing mm -hmm. that that would make the judges sit back, not to say that the one thing isn't there, but that it isn't sufficiently obvious in, in the story. Mm. So you talked about results. Yes. My next three points are <laughs> all about results. Okay. The first is just a general expression of frustration that even with very, very good work, we still haven't gone beyond volume of media coverage and social media, friends, likes, followers. Mm -hmm. So... We are still very much focused on we reached a, a lot of people with our message, mm. not on once people received our message, they did these things which are useful to my company. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is a I mean, I could have made almost identical remarks to this 25 mm -hmm. years ago when I started doing this stuff. But we have to start at least, you know, 
I understand that PR can't take credit for every business result that comes along while the PR campaign is running. Mm-hmm. But if you can say, you know, this campaign contributed to or over the duration of this campaign, sales increased by, at least we're making an effort to suggest that we did something other than just get a lot of media people to show up and write about us. Yeah. And it's it's very disappointing in, in this day and age to, to still be making that point. What percentage, if I had to ask of campaigns do you think are still relying on, on, on awareness and reach metrics? So I had a breakfast meeting with Barry Legater from mm. the um, Association mm. for Measurement and Evaluation of Communications a couple of days ago. And one of the things that we decided during that breakfast was that ANEC was going to help us do an analysis mm. of campaigns in, I think, three or four categories. So the consumer marketing category, the corporate image category, the digital campaign category. Mm-hmm. To get a to to get a sense accurately of what the percentages are, mm. but I would say that fewer than ten percent of entries go wow. beyond. And you know, look, I'm there are a lot of things that judges take into consideration. Some judges come into the room looking for a big, bold, creative idea, and that's all they care about. Others come in fixated on results, and that's all they care about. If it comes to a tiebreaker, if there are two good campaigns that the judges both like, it will almost always, the tiebreaker will almost always will be, well, at least, you know, these guys showed that they, they'd made an effort to produce a business result. Right. Um, and so, you know, from an awards perspective, but more from an industry perspective, that just has to be a bigger focus going forward. Mm. The other thing about results, and this is this is more of an EMEA point than it is uh, necessarily a global point, but it's important, is provide context for your results. Mm. I have no way of knowing whether, um, whether reaching an audience of 11 million people in Serbia mm-hmm. is great or average. Mm. You know, I mean... I, uh, I don't I don't know whether that's a, a terrific result or, or, you know, something that you just go, oh, sure, that that sounds about right. Um, if you're going to say if you're going to in a, in a small market in particular, if you're going to sort of claim a big viewership number or a great audience reach or number increase in Facebook friends um, or the number of people who entered a competition. Mm. Find some way of putting that in context for right. me and the other judges, because otherwise it's a fairly meaningless statistic. The final thing that I want to say about results, and this is a pet peeve of mine personally, but but also I think sort of rubs some judges the wrong way, is make sure that your results match your objectives. Now, this sounds like, you know, fairly self-evident, mm-hmm. but the number of campaigns we get where the objective is to drive sales mm-hmm. and the result is we got 25 million media impressions mm-hmm. or the objective is raise awareness and the result is we got 25 million media impressions or 50,000 Facebook followers. Mm-hmm. Um, what The only thing that that says to me is you didn't achieve your objectives. If your objective is to raise sales, then you know you have to uh, you have to put in a line about sales in the results. Mm-hmm. You can actually say the impact on sales was positive, but our client refuses to let you let us tell you how positive. I understand that happens, but you know at least address it. As mm-hmm. if you have an objective, you have to address that objective in the results. And if your objective is to raise awareness, 
then I want to see what awareness levels were beforehand and what they were afterwards. Yeah, so real awareness. Getting, getting yeah. a ton of media... Look, I, I could go out there tomorrow mm-hmm. and get every newspaper in the country to write a story about McDonald's. Mm. Awareness of McDonald's would not go up one percentage point as a result because we're all aware of it anyway. <laughs> the, the two things are not the same. If you're going to claim that your objective is awareness, show me what mm. awareness what happened to awareness and then the final point and i i sort of touched on this earlier so mm. i, I that final point is really me just circling back to some mm-hmm. of the things that i've said capture the passion mm. when you went home and told your best friend or your mom or you know somebody that you know who doesn't work in pr what you did today and why it was so much fun um you 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 do it in a way that that gets right to the nub of what's great about this work. Tell me and my fellow judges the story the same way. And remember again, the judges are reading a hundred of these things. Make yours memorable. The one question that when we're we're finding it really difficult to pick a winner in a category, one of the questions that I always ask the judges is, which of these campaigns will you remember tomorrow? Which of these campaigns will you go back to your office and tell your team about? Yeah. And again, you have to you have to put something in that two page summary that makes your campaign the most memorable, the most the most exciting of all of those hundred and twenty that people are reading. Mm-hmm. And and there are people who do it really really well. Right. Uh, agencies? Yes. Okay. Uh, there are yes, there are there are agencies and you can see it in the list of nominees mm. and who's doing really well in the list of nominees. Okay. That you know, and it it's not big agency versus small agency. There are plenty of big agencies that do it well, there are plenty of big agencies that do it badly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are small and mid sized firms. Again, EMEA is really fresh in my mind. So the work we see from Unity, the work we mm-hmm. see from Hope and Glory, the work we see from Gilmud and Kisa, the work we see from Trigger, the work that we see from Prime used to be yeah. uh, used to be now Weber Shandwick mm-hmm. in, in the Nordics, but still yeah. Now, they really know how to tell a story. Yeah. And and I, it it's not just about a winning awards. That's that's what I think is the important thing to remember here is mm. the ability to tell a story. Yeah. And the ability to convince people that you can tell their story in a way that will get people excited mm-hmm. is a core competency of great PR. Yeah. And the inability to do that on the part of so many is troubling. It is troubling, indeed. Um, would you or would some of these agencies, do you think, be open to the idea of putting their, of making their submissions public? We would certainly love to do that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think that there are a couple of things that, that are important here. Um, showcasing the best work is mm. great marketing for the yeah. agencies involved, right? I mean, the, the, the sure. ability to access case histories is great for the, for the agencies involved. Yeah. Um, it, um, it will help other agencies figure out how to enter awards. But also, frankly, one of the things that I think we suffer from as an industry is that we don't have a formalized body of knowledge the way that lawyers and management consultants and others do. Mm-hmm. And just 
having somewhere where you can go and and sort of glean creative ideas and get a sense of what best practices are in different industry sectors in different practice areas would mm. be incredibly useful to the industry as a whole particularly in emerging markets but honestly in you know it's not like um, it's not like we've achieved some unbelievable level of sophistication, even in the developed markets. There's still plenty of good work and plenty of not so good work. Yeah. And so, yeah, showcasing that work, um, mm. I think, would be would benefit everybody. It would benefit um, it benefit the agencies themselves. It would benefit the industry as a whole. It would uh, mm. improve the quality of entries all of, all across the board. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Are you off you. to New York? I am leaving soon? for New York on Sunday morning. I uh-huh. have agency two of the weeks year. of uh, Agency of the Year meetings. You lucky man. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, I think probably the next podcast we do with you um, may well be to discuss our selections for Agencies of the Year, which are coming up more or less at the end of the month, although I think the um, the North America ones are are actually going to be announced. Well, at least the short lists will be up by the end of the month. Yep. Um, and for EMEA. So we'll, we'll be back to discuss those and much more besides, no doubt. Thank That's you very much. Fun. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 